Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're reading messages that you've sent in over the past couple of weeks. Uh, Most of them concern episodes that played in that time period. Occasionally, there will be one or two that reaches deep into the archive, but that's okay. We're always happy to hear about stuff that uh, came out a while ago. Today, our mailbot Carney smells uh, heavily of, of not just eggs, not just sulfurous, but like burned eggs. And I think that's, that's a bad sign of things to come. But Rob, do you mind if I jump right in with this message from Derek? Go for it. Okay, this is from the replay of our episode Into the Egg Chamber, in which we did talk about uh, various, not just the biology of egg laying and egg incubation, but also uh, how cooked eggs can sometimes explode. And so, oh, and one more thing before I start this, uh, I, I, I edited this message to remove various apologies for the length of the email. And here I want to issue a public service announcement. Folks, if it's too long to read, that's okay. We either, we just won't read it or we'll pare it down before we read it. Either way, there is no need to apologize about the length of email. So I'm going to try to try to avoid that in the future. One, you know, one sentence here or there might get through, but I'm, I'm trying to dance around it. We'll see how well we do. So Derek says, Hey, Robert and Joe. I'm writing in regards to your recent vault episode, Into the Egg Chamber. The strangest thing happened about a week after listening to the episode. I came back from work late at night to discover that someone had left something burning on the stove. Rushing to check what it was, I found they had been trying to boil two eggs. I don't know how much time had passed by the time I got to it, but all the water had evaporated from the pot even though the lid was still on. You can imagine what happened next. I went straight for the lid, and what followed was a loud bang, with the lid flying out of my hand and what I can only describe as egg shrapnel flying everywhere. Anyway, no one was hurt, and no one is owning up to it. Ooh, is this this a family situation or a roommate situation, I wonder? I like to imagine that this is just Derek and one other person. (laughs) He's He's being very polite in his vagueness about placing blame. Uh, No, it was you, man. (laughs) But why did I have the bowl, Bart? Um, anyway, uh, Derek goes on to say, I've been listening to your podcast for almost five years now and have been loving every minute of it. The topics you cover have something for everyone. I recently started a new job and for someone who is as socially awkward as I am, your podcast has saved me many times because I can always bring up a different, interesting or weird topic of discussion. Thanks for all your hard work. And I've tried to attach a picture of the eggs. So Rob, if you'll scroll down in our document here, these are Derek's eggs. Uh, the, I think this is a good occasion to use the thanks I hate it meme. This truly yeah. does look absolutely revolting and it looks like it smells like stomach churning. Yeah, this is gross. Thanks for sending. <laughs> now, I guess this would go in line with what we talked about in the end of the egg chamber episode where uh, there was the phenomenon of hard boiled eggs, I think often having been reheated in the microwave that when somebody pierces them with a fork or bites into them, they will suddenly explode. And it's not known for sure why that happened, but the the best hypothesis seems to be that there are little pockets of superheated steam that form inside the the matrix of the yolk. And when those pockets get released, they rapidly expand and kind of turn the egg into a bomb. Yeah. And that seems like that may be what happened right here in this picture. Yeah. Maybe moving the pot disturbed it or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I I wonder that anyway, that's uh, I'm glad no one was harmed. I hope the culprit is found. Yeah. (laughs) 
All right, here's another bit of listener mail. This one comes to us from the Home Dad Abroad. Um, Home Dad Abroad writes, Greetings, Joe and Robert. There are many aspects of your two-parter on numbers that sparked great interest and thoughts for me. But what inspired this note was your query concerning different finger counting systems. Back in the 70s, until third grade, I was segregated from the larger student body in an experimental class that combined four years of interacting students and three shared teachers. When the time came for educational seminars and conventions, one of the three would rotate out to attend and invariably return with new ideas and approaches to test on our captive minds. One such convention during my first grade year produced a new methodology for finger counting, which was implemented immediately in the classroom. It consisted of using both hands. The right represented single digits and the left was double digits. The four right fingers were one and the thumb was five. The left fingers were each 10 with the thumb as 50. Just using the two hands, one could easily count to 99. If one extended from the left hand two fingers and the thumb while extending four right fingers, it would produce the number 74. By shifting the fingers, it became possible to quickly add, subtract, multiply, and divide. It would take a much longer email to adequately describe the various techniques that I still barely remember, but it was smooth and easy and would often result in the dropping of pencils. This became our go-to method in class for counting and learning the multiplication tables. Subsequently, it allowed me to teach myself how to divide at least a year before it was covered in the curriculum. Hmm. The system was not adopted outside of that class, which was sadly disbanded when I entered fourth grade, and I have never been able to track down information online about this method. Despite it all, I default to that method to this very day and risk the dropping of my phone in lieu of pencils. <laughs> Cheers, the home data brought. This is really interesting. I, I've never heard about this before. Yeah, this I would I would be very interested if anyone out there listening knows what this uh, counting system is, this number system uh, happens to be, and uh, yeah, it'd be neat to to, uh, to to put a name to it. Maybe it's number weighing. I don't know. Well, uh, Rob, there is an email we also got from longtime correspondent Jim in New Jersey about a finger counting system that sounds kind of similar, actually. Do you uh, want to read this one, too? Sure. This is from, yes, from Jim in New Jersey, Robert and Joe. Anyone with four fingers and a thumb on each hand can easily count into basic arithmetic with numbers 0 to 99 using a technique called chisenbop. You use the fingers on each hand, mimicking one rod with a five bead the thumb, and four one beads, the fingers. The right hand represents units. The left hand represents tens. Jim in New Jersey. P.S. A podcast on non-electronic computing devices such as the Abacus and Slide Rule would be a good addition to this series. Uh, I just uh, opened this up in another tab to look at it. Uh, Chisenbop is a Korean finger counting system. Actually, the, the word comes from the Korean for finger calculation, uh, chi mm. or chishi meaning finger, and uh, senpop or senbyop, I think, for calculation. Oh, very interesting. And uh, and I agree with Jim. I think I think it would be great to do an episode on non-electronic computing devices. Uh, there's some really, really, really fun stuff. Absolutely. So I was just trying to think about something funny. Like, what is the correct technological analogy for the mental skill you learn that allows you to better or more efficiently perform numerical and mathematical tasks with the aid of body parts like fingers or external tools, like the way that the Ashango bone might have been used, if the if the hypotheses about it are correct. Uh, I, I guess what I'm looking for is something that is neither quite software nor hardware, but the 
or maybe it is a kind of software, would be the mental software upgrade that makes better use of the existing hardware. Would that be like the device drivers in your head? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what the, what the actual yeah, terminology for this would be, but as we explored in those episodes, it goes way back. You know, this actually makes me think about how while there are standard finger counting systems, I guess there's nothing to prevent somebody from coming up with a totally idiosyncratic finger counting system, right? Like just making up some system on their own and using that. I wonder, is anybody out there ever, did anybody do that? Did you go your own way with finger counting? Hmm, some sort of self-taught uh, finger counting system? Like you know, what kind of system would we come up with if, uh, if one wasn't presented to us? Maybe like, a, you know, each wrinkle on the back of your knuckle means something. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay, we also got some messages in response to the episode that uh, Seth and I did about musical frisson. Uh, Rob, do you want to read this one from Hannah, or should I do sure. this? Sure, sure, okay. I can jump in here. Sure. Hi, Robert, Joe, and Seth. Love the episode on musical frisson. And <laughs> although I'm sure you're getting uh, tons of emails like this one, I wanted to share something that tends to set off my own musical frisson, crowds singing together. I think it is a combination of a couple of things. First is the pure volume of that many people singing in unison and probably at the top of their lungs. Second, I think it is the almost magical feeling that comes from communal singing. If I'm witnessing it in person, especially if I'm joining in, I'm obviously feeling that magic directly. And even if I'm listening to a recording of a, sound, of a crowd singing, I can still get those chills because I can imagine how awesome that moment must have felt. The last aspect that does it for me, which I'm sure not everyone appreciates, is that I love, love, love imperfect vocal performances. Not so much like wasted karaoke levels, but maybe <laughs> someone who is untrained but giving it their best shot, or a highly skilled vocalist who maybe loses control for a little bit. I think it may tie into the performance subverting my expectations with things like a, a breath taken in a weird place, a quick vocal crack, or a half second where they're slightly out of tune, but then lock in. I know a lot of people are not really fans of the crowd singing along during a concert. Quote, I paid to hear so-and-so sing, not their fans which I understand to some extent, but for me, it's one of the things I love most about a live performance and something I've grown to appreciate even more since the pandemic took it away. Not just experiencing something you love, but experiencing the way other people love the same thing. Just my two cents, love the show so much, Hannah. P.S. After Joe mentioned Chrono Trigger in a listener email episode, I gotta know if any of you have played Xeno Gear, Xeno, what was it, Xeno Gear, Gears? Xeno Gears. I, guess, I would guess Gears. I don't know. Gear, what, what, I have not like played it. Alien uh, pinball machine? Is this what we were, what we were talking about? <laughs> Alien pinball machine? Xenogears? Or is it racing? It's like Mario I, Kart I, with I Xenomorphs? I really have no idea. Well, I would guess it's an RPG from what Hannah's saying here. Oh, okay. She says, I was a little too young to play it when it first came out, but played it on emulator last year, and there's a lot about it that seems right up this show's alley. Lots of mechs and Gnosticism. Ooh. Uh, well, obviously, from what we were saying, no, I have not played Xenogears. I'm, I'm not like a big like JRPG or even RPG in general guy. I just happened to have at some point played Chrono Trigger, which is a, a wonderful game for the Super Nintendo um, that is definitely worth going back and revisiting on emulator or whatever if you can. But but beyond that, I, I don't know a lot about uh, RPGs of that era. Well, um, Hannah makes some some great points about communal singing. Um I don't know if, if I am necessarily as moved by just choral performances so much, but I do appreciate the experience of communal singing. Like I, I enjoy mm -hmm. 
singing as a part of a, like a church congregation or, um, you know, doing like Elizabethan Christmas carols whilst mm-hmm. uh, begging for wassail, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, part of it is like growing up with these songs and the shared culture of these songs, but there's just something also fun about everybody, um, you know, everybody's singing these songs at the same time. You're getting your, your, your you're sort of syncing up your neural networks to mm-hmm. a certain extent and engaging in this sort of, uh, you know, communal, uh, you know, uh, uplifting of music. Yeah. I mean, this very much reminds me of stuff we talked about in our episode on the, the emotion of Kama Muda, mm-hmm. uh, which has to do with, you know, the, these sort of uh, communal emotions. And I, I feel that very much with, crowds singing along to music that that they love. Uh, I, so I love crowds singing along to music, though I have the exact opposite reaction about something. Rob, I don't know if you've ever been to a show like this where the crowd just cannot shut up during rests or pauses in the music. So like anytime there's a rest or anytime a song gets quiet, people start going, woo! It drives me nuts. I hate really? it. Really? Huh. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes that's the time to woo. That's, that's when you <laughs> let them know. Like the song has been really hot and heavy and then it, you know, it, it goes down a little bit and, and that's when you, uh, you can get through to the, the, the musicians on stage. Well, maybe if it happens once in a concert, okay. But I, I've been to concerts that literally every quiet moment was filled with woos and <laughs> unacceptable. I think sometimes, I, I'm thinking particularly about... Uh, I, well, I guess like Tool songs come to mind. That was the last concert I went to. Um, is that sometimes like the, the, you're, you're on a ride with this song and it can be a rather long song, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's hitting you hard. And then you finally get to the part where things quiet down a little bit and there's a short break. And, you know, part of it is it's quiet and I can yell and be heard. But also it's, it's, it's like you've... Um, You've come out of the tunnel, right? You've you've uh, you've reached maybe not the end of the roller coaster, but like this is your your chance to uh, uh, to express what you've been feeling the last five minutes. I don't know. Hmm. Okay. Now, in terms of people singing along with songs, I probably have found it uh, slightly annoying at times, but I tell you, I will take it every concert. <laughs> uh, for the rest of my life over anybody um, like visibly filming a show using their, their phone Ugh, so or annoying. essentially yeah. they, like watching the performance through their phone screen. That is the absolute worst because I'm, I'm trying to focus on the performance and instead like your goony face is illuminated by your phone and, and there's the footage of the, the thing we're trying to watch in real life. And, and, uh, and I have to like look at that as well. Um, that, that gets on my nerves to no end. Musicians love it. They love <laughs> yeah. it. look out in the audience and just see a sea of phones. <laughs> <laughs> but another thing uh, Hannah mentions is the uh, certain types of imperfect vocal performances uh, cause, causing frisson for her. And uh, I can definitely identify with that. In fact, one of the best examples of a frisson trigger of in like all of music, which we played briefly in that episode, is the backing vocal track from the Rolling Stones song Gimme Shelter, which is sung by a singer named Mary Clayton, who is a, a, a fantastic singer. But there's a part where she's singing so hard that her voice just kind of cracks and mm-hmm. and it's those cracking moments where like the, the a person who is a great singer is singing with such intensity that like they're they're singing falters that that's like incredibly powerful. Oh yeah, Marianne Faithful is wonderful. Um, she no no she no sang- Mary Mary Clayton is on. Oh this one. okay. Well, I still stand by the fact that Marianne Faithful is pretty great. Oh, didn't, she's didn't great she too. Some, didn't she have some connection to the Stones? I think she was, she may have sung with them. I think she okay. and Mick Jagger were together at some point. Maybe that's where I, yeah. 
Anyway, yeah, Marianne Faithful. Uh, I really like her as well. The Memory Remains. I'm going to say it. Great Metallica <laughs> song. I, I, like, I like that song. I'll, I'll, I'll put that, I'll, I'll cue that one up sometimes and listen to it. A divisive pick, I know. <laughs> Load. No, that's Reload. I can't remember. It's Reload. Unload. Unload was the other one. Yeah. But no, the, this is Mary Clayton, but Mary, Marianne Faithful, also very good. Yes. Okay. Okay, a few more messages about Freeson. One comes from James. Uh, I think this might be the same correspondent who we, we were getting back and forth with about Gex at some point, uh, unless I'm mistaken. Anyway, James says, good day, Joe and Seth and Robert. Um, was excited to see your recent episode on the subject of musical frisson appear in my podcatcher. It's a sensation I've experienced for many years, but only recently learned its name, which I've been pronouncing incorrectly. Whoops. I, I wouldn't worry about it. I mean, it, it sounds like people just say it different ways. Uh, yeah. Say it however you want. Uh, I, I most frequently feel it when I have a strong personal memory tied to a song, such as pop-punk tunes by the Ataris that I listen to endlessly while daydreaming about early crushes in high school. Additionally, I've often found remixes of classic video game melodies trigger Frisson as they rekindle fond memories of a blissfully wasted childhood. One that always does it for me is the nerdcore artist Mega Ran's track For the Gamers, which features samples and lyrics related to many beloved games. I'm curious if this song elicits Frisson when the build-up completes uh, and uh, gives a, gives a timestamp here for others who grew up loving these games. Uh, while I'd always assumed it was just a subjective feeling based solely on personal memories, an anticipatory dopamine release resulting from rhythmic pattern recognition and prediction makes sense too. I noticed your examples of the replacements Alex Chilton and Mary Clayton's uh, singing on Give, Gimme Shelter, both causing the fun, fuzzy, warm feeling for me, so it's hard for me to argue. On the subject of the feeling itself, I associate it more with a warm tingle than a cold shiver, and the the term, uh, this is a term that was cited about it, skin orgasm, though it's obviously not a sexual experience, doesn't seem too far off, problematic though it may be. At any rate, this episode really hit home, and as your recent video game correspondent, if you'd do me the honor of bestowing such a title, I couldn't resist replying to this one. Uh, please keep up the great work with one of my favorite podcasts, Cheers, James. I, I love what, what James brought up here about uh, Frisson and its, and its connection to, to things where it's not just the music that, you're, um, it, that, that, uh, that is in your mind when you're experiencing this, but it's something that has become immersed with the music, uh, particular memories, or in my case, it'll often be a song that I was listening to while I was reading something that made a, uh, had a big impact on me, you know, a work of fiction mm. or or um, a piece of music I was listening to a lot whilst uh, envisioning a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, that sort of thing, you know, <laughs> where the, the two become so uh, linked together. Mm -hmm. And then they also, there's like this feedback uh, loop, I guess, or this, uh, this system where uh, each one uh, makes the other more potent. Like the music is more oh, yeah. effective because it makes me think of the Dungeons and Dragons setting. And then, you know, thinking about the Dungeons and Dragons setting is more, uh, uh, more of an experience because of the music that I'm listening to while I'm doing it. 
Music in a vacuum can definitely elicit it, though I think some of the studies we were looking at found it was especially common with things like film scores. Mm. And I think that there may well be a reason to that. It's not just that film scores are particularly frisson-inducing in sonic terms, but that they are paired with scenes in movies. And these scenes bring their own emotional heft and sort of complement the song in various ways. They create these emotional associations. Yeah, to, to just crank it up to where it's just absolute emotional manipulation. Yeah. You know, a quick example that comes to mind is the Hurdy Gurdy Man song, Ooh. which which I, I don't think ever had a real Donovan, effect. right? Yeah, yeah, I don't think it ever really, I always appreciated it as a nice song, but it wasn't until I saw it used in Fincher's Zodiac movie. Zodiac, yes. Where it's like, it, it took on a new quality for me, and, uh, and it just gives me the shivers when I hear it now. If it's used in another, I saw it recently in a TV show, um, that was also had a, had a great sense of style and, and setting, but it, it instantly brought me back to Zodiac. Yeah, it's funny how really good use of a pop song in a movie can sort of change that song forever. Like you can't mm-hmm. think about it without thinking about the movie. For, for me, it's both sides now. I can't hear it without thinking of Hereditary. Oh, yeah. I, I haven't seen Hereditary yet. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, d- and I don't, don't know if I know this song either. So I'm, I'm really. Uh, <laughs> oh, look it up. Joni okay. Mitchell. Wait, wait, wait. How's it go? I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down. I mean, we okay, might get okay. my cheesed if I do too much. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Okay. I know the song. Yes. <laughs> Moons and Junes and Ferris wheels, the the dizzy dancing way you feel. Mm-hmm. And pieces on the ground? No. This oh, I th- that's a different one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet dreams and flying machines. <laughs> Getting back to listener mail. Okay. Uh, let's see. Rob, do you want to do this one from Robin here? Absolutely. All right. From Robin, um, also addressing the Comfort in the Box episodes. Hi, Rob, Joe, and Seth. I am catching up on some of your episodes from the latest round of work from home disruption. And I, uh, I tend to listen to more podcasts during regular work uh, than when working from home. Anyway, listening to your Comfort in a Box Cat Edition episode, I had a short comment on the idea of some kind of a 3D social chess that cats undergo with their square sitting behavior. The young adult fiction author Diane Duane in her On Her Majesty's Wizardly Service series about cat wizards introduces the concept of hoish. It is essentially an ongoing game of 3D social chess where posture, sight lines, attention, position, actions, etc. all play a part. I found it a particularly delightful and satisfying way to explain in fiction what all cat owners or cat observers notice, exactly what you were discussing, uh, their sometimes inscrutable behavior. On a separate note, for the experience of musical frisson that was discussed in the episode with Joe and Seth, the piece that always gets me, even now thinking about it as I type, is Mountains from the Interstellar soundtrack by Hans Zimmer. Crank that baby up and get ready to shiver. The entire organ music content of this soundtrack is extremely evocative. Cheers, Robin. Oh, film scores again. Yeah. And Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer's one of those uh, artists that yeah. sometimes I... I barely notice his music, but when he's, uh, when he's working at the right score and it's the right picture, uh, yeah, he's, he's amazing. Uh, I mean, I tend to, I think over associate him with the way his Batman score sounded it was so very mm-hmm. heavy on like the brass part of the orchestra, the kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, he, he's got more range than that. I believe other, yeah, other yeah. movies are, are uh, more melodic maybe. 
Yeah, I think sometimes I set myself up to dislike his his music just because he's such a huge name that yeah. I forget the, the yeah he's he's got this terrific range and he is a he's a famous composer for a reason. I think I know. I'll have to look it up after we record, but I think I know this one from Interstellar, and it is it is moving. All right, do we want to wrap up by mentioning a couple of uh, Weird House Cinema messages? Let's do it. Okay, this first one comes from Scott. Scott says, Dear Robert and Joe, I was delighted by the subject of this week's Weird House Cinema episode, Death Moon, because I happen to be moving to, uh, is it Kauai? Is that how you say mm-hmm. it? Yep. Um, uh, Kauai for a job opportunity. With that in mind, I would be very interested in an episode dedicated to Hawaiian mythology per Robert's request for listener feedback on the subject. Best, Scott. Okay, we get, we got a thumbs up for uh, coming back to Hawaiian mythology, and I, I imagine that would get heavily into Hawaiian monsters, right? Uh, that's just, that's often our entryway into such yeah. discussions. Um, I think you know a little a little of it might be coming on. We have some upcoming episodes that deal with uh, with Polynesian culture, so I don't know if we're going to get into any mythology in those or not. But but certainly down the line, I think we could do something that involves monsters that gets into uh, Hawaiian mythology. Yeah, uh, those upcoming episodes. Well, I don't want to spoil too much, but they're a little bit more Polynesian science and technology focused. Right, but right. Uh, but yeah, we we should we should definitely do Polynesian beasts and wonders and stories as well. Yeah. All right. Here's another Weird House Cinema Lister Mail. This one comes from Tantri. Hello, guys. If you're in search of a genre-bending Weird House film, try the fine British space vampire flick Life Force from 1985. (sighs) Yes. (laughs) It is streaming on Amazon Prime. I recommend it for both the extremely dry line delivery by all the actors and the improbably great uh, special effects, some of which are definitely practical, which I love. I clicked on this flick thinking it would be a good forgettable B-movie to play in the background while cooking, but it turned out to be far too strange and original not to actively watch. And also, I vote yes to an episode on cross-cultural man-beast myths. Thanks for the hours of free brain massaging. Tantri. Oh, and P.S., the movie Spaceships and Creatures look a lot like the entities in Watt's Blindsight. Whoa, I never would have made a connection to Blindsight, but, oh, yeah, you you, you know us well, we... I think we, I can say we both love Life Force, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, now I have to admit, it's not a film that I've seen in recent decades, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I, it has, I, I finally look back on it. So I would be up for watching it again at some point. It has so many bonkers elements in it, uh, some great practical effects. Toby uh, Hooper. And, yeah, Toby Hooper at the helm, though, wasn't it, was, there, was, it was, was someone else involved in well, as well in this? Or is it Toby Hooper was the, I know he directed it. But I'm trying to remember if this was like a big studio venture that had other fingers in the pot. Uh, Hold on, I'm looking it up now. Terrific cast, though. Oh, well, it was written by none other than Dan O'Bannon, who is... Oh, mine. that's who I was... The, yeah, it's also some a Dan of, O'Bannon picture. Yeah, Some of the great horror and sci-fi movies. Uh, Dan O'Bannon behind, uh, of course, one, the writer of Alien and... Um, Total Recall. I think writer... Yeah. Oh, was he? Total Recall? Okay. I think he was involved in Total Recall, yeah. Uh, well, if so, that's a great movie also. Uh, uh, writer-director of Return of the Living Dead, which is mm, maybe my yes. favorite zombie movie. That's a great one. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting revved up into some... Uh, we're going to have to do some zombie stuff for Weird House Cinema going forward because I, I don't know that we've done pro- a proper zombie film yet. And there are so many good ones that I'm... Uh, 
I'm, I'm, I'm starting to feel myself get into zombies again. It's coming back. Yeah, I'm still wary. I mean, it, zombies were sort of my first love when I was getting into horror movies and really, I, I don't know, having having just total cinema geek outs, I started with like Dawn of the Dead and all that. Mm-hmm. that, that and it was, I for some reason, it felt unique to me at the time, but I realized I was part of a cultural zombie craze that took place in the 2000s. Uh, I still don't know exactly why that happened. It'd be interesting to analyze culturally, uh, like in terms of what trends contributed to that. Uh, may have just had to do with things like there being remakes of Dawn of the Dead coming out then and stuff. Yeah. Which I never never actually saw. But yeah, I, I went zombie crazy just like everybody did in the 2000s. And then I got so burned out on zombies. I, I <laughs> thought I never wanted to see a zombie movie again. But yeah, but I'm, I'm coming back around. Yeah, I think I was pretty burnt out on, on them as well. For some reason, I watched the, the new Zack Snyder uh, Army of the Dead picture on the airplane on my recent trip. And, um, you know, it's... It's, it's grim a and depressing. You know, it's a movie. It's a if you're going to watch a <laughs> an, a really it's long a film. <laughs> zombie film on an airplane, then go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I skipped around in it, but then <laughs> on the the trip, I was reading the new uh, Ravenloft book for Dungeons and Dragons, the fifth edition, mm-hmm. and their use of the use of zombies in one of the particular domains of dread in that uh, that really captivated me. And now that I think that's what has, has, has got me interested in zombies again. It's uh, it's dungeons and dragons. It's, it's done it once more, but I guess we did watch a zombie movie. Didn't we? We watched, uh, uh, uh we watched the, uh, the shockwaves movie. Oh yeah. I mean, that yeah. was zombie light there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, coming back to Tantri's recommendation here. Yeah. Life forces is absolutely bonkers. It, it <laughs> is. It, it's funny. I've never thought about it this way, but uh, yeah, I think some of the strangeness comes out of the, out of mixing how bonkers the premise is with some of the extremely dry, very British, you know, uh, almost Charles gray level of dryness, uh, uh, performances by some of the main actors. Yeah, and and then also there are some very I don't know how juvenile the the plot is, but there were elements of it that definitely appealed to juvenile viewers. Um, you know, yeah. there's some, the silliness with the you know some of the silliness of the monsters and the basic concept, and then I think there was a lot of uh, arguably unnecessary n- female nudity oh, totally. uh, in the yeah. picture. Um, and then yeah, to have this sort of this this very very uh, dry British dialogue on top of all that. But yeah, I'd be I'd be up for looking at uh, at that movie again. Is it the second movie that Dan O'Bannon made that was in some way inspired by uh, Planet of the Vampires? I guess so, yeah, because you can draw lines from Planet of the Vampires to um, to both Alien and this film. Yeah. Um, so that yeah, Planet of the Vampires. Uh, that's another film I watched on the airplane. Uh, that that one. Uh, what? That, that yeah. was a streaming on the plane. Well, I brought it with me on my phone. I had it, like, pre-downloaded okay. Uh, okay. off of Prime. That makes and, sense. Yeah, and uh, and I, I'd been meaning to watch it in full, and I finally did. Um, and I think I was telling you about this. It's 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 not an exciting movie uh, in terms of plot or performance, but absolutely breathtaking to look at. Just wonderful yeah. visuals and colors and sights and sounds. Well, speaking of movies that are right to put on while you're cooking, as Tantri says. Uh, <laughs> uh, she did here. I, I sometimes also put on movies while I'm cooking or just while I'm hanging out with people. Planet of the Vampires is a fantastic movie to do that with. Yeah. 
All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close up the mailbag here. I do have one last uh, bit here, and that is a plug for Corridor Magazine. As many of you may remember, our former co-host Christian Sager masterminded a weird art, fiction, and nonfiction publication called Corridor last year. Uh, uh, they ran a, a Kickstarter that was successful, and I'm, I'm uh, to understand that physical copies are currently making their way to the owners. And if you didn't get in on the Kickstarter, you can pre-order yourself up a copy as well. Um, I think you just go to the, the Kickstarter page for Corridor, but if you want to go to their social media accounts to get more of like a, a definite link to where you need to go, on Facebook, they are Corridor Publications. On Twitter, they are Corridor Pubs. And on Instagram, Corridor Publications. Uh, so pick it up. I've, I've, I have reviewed, I have not had my hands on the physical copy yet, but I've looked at a PDF, very colorful, full of uh, all sorts of exciting uh, written works. And I even wrote uh, a futuristic shark short story in there that has a really cool illustration. So check it out if that's your thing. Sounds great. I'd love to read it. Yeah, I'll get you a copy. All right. Well, if you want to write into us, do so. We'd love to hear from you. We do uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener mail every Monday. Tuesdays and Thursdays are our core Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes. On Wednesdays, we do an artifact. And on Fridays, that's Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most of the science and culture and just focus on some sort of a weird motion picture. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.